We want to take that and continue that growth of our branded products across the country in an orderly way that we're not losing the integrity of our products so the people get the consistency in every time they have our product. We want to be the Coca-Cola. We want to be the McDonald's. This is The Dime. Dive into the cannabis and hemp industry through trends, insights, predictions, and tangents. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of The Dime. I'm Brian Fields, and with me as always is Kellen Finney. And this week, we've got a very special guest, John Levine, CEO of MaryMed. John, thanks for taking the time. How are you doing today? Very good. And you guys, great to see you. Good to see you. Kellen, how are you doing? I'm doing really well. Really excited to talk to John. Really excited to kind of learn about East Coast market from someone who's actively participating in it. And, you know, just excited for the conversation. How are you doing, Brian? I'm excited. And as you did say, we are talking East Coast again today, John. And just for the record, a little East Coast, West Coast battle, or Kellen likes to say West Coast for himself, but we both know that's not true. John, where would you put yourself on the uh, East Coast, West Coast battle? Uh, we're East Coast. <laughs> we're the New York Boston fighting of the uh, the East Coast. Let it ride, John. Let it ride. So, John, before we dive right in, I think we should start with the topic that we don't really discuss too much, especially in this industry. And I think that's the session planning. And I think the story with you and Mary Med about the transitioning with the executive role, but also mourning a colleague and a brother of yours. I'd like to talk about just the difficulty of that and just kind of the importance of understanding those components and then the transition period. Yeah, well, we, as you said, we lost my uh, best friend, brother, partner, and uh, starting of this company, founder, uh, Bob Fireman, in December of last year. And uh, as you were saying earlier, succession plans are always a good thing to have. I guess like uh, we got very lucky that Bob and I were as close as we were, uh, though we were never prepared for what happened. Um, I'm happy that I was around and ready to be able to step up and continue this company growing and working towards the right directions. We lost him at a very young age, and we lost him quicker than any of us had hoped. But uh, as you said, Bob and I were extremely, extremely close. When we founded this company many years ago, or as I should say, as we got into the cannabis industry back in 2008, who would have thunk that long ago that we would still be heavily in this as we are? And uh, it was a tough situation to lose a good friend while we're in the middle of a continued growth of this company. But I've been finding that the team around me, we put a great team. We have a lot of great support within the management that we didn't really miss a beat. We have continued to grow and uh, we're looking forward to the future of accomplishing everything that Bob and I had set out to do when we first started. I think that's so important. And unfortunately, those are part of life events that you've perfectly transcribed. So as a company, is there changes that happen after that to lay future groundwork to prepare for succession planning? Just take us through those intricacies, because I would assume most companies don't have two leaders of a company as close as the two of you were. So they don't even have that ability to lean on each other. So just take us through that approach and like, what can be done after that in order to, I guess, prepare is the word. Well, I'd say preparing in the succession plan, is it sounds like a scary word to talk about a succession plan. No one ever wants to say that they're going to need one because they don't think they're going to pass away or they don't think of it in the right way of growth or uh, moving up to other things. Um, with Bob and I, though, we had started a organizational structure where we were starting to reorg and bring in additional people on the management team. And we had actually already started to talk about the future of growing the company into areas that Bob and I were basically new to. I mean, we were a public company. We didn't have a lot of public experience, Bob and I, but we put really good people around us. We also brought in our CFO, Susan, back in March of last year before Bob got sick. And that was to start the growth process for us to start a succession plan and start other roles for him and I to help the company grow to the next level. So it kind of was a good opportunity when it happened that I went from the CFO to the president. And then with Bob's uh, passing, I became the CEO and president. But it gave me a little bit more exposure, which I was able to work on understanding how the company would operate. 
And I just want you to expand on the Benzinga Award that when this airs, this will be after you get up the award. So if you could just quickly touch on that and the importance of, of that. Yeah, well, I'm very excited to say um, that we wanted a way to honor Bob and everything that we have achieved. And Benzinger always has been very supportive of Maramed and a lifetime of Bob and I being around there. And uh, Howard, my uh, chairman of of communication, he uh, came up with the idea and I thought it was a great idea. So we spoke with Benzinger and we created the Bob Fireman Entrepreneur Award uh, that will will issue at the Benzinger event every year. And uh, I think it's a great opportunity to find people in the cannabis industry that have had the heart and the desire to do something in an industry that's not easy. And we've been able to uh, structure this award to celebrate a person who's learned how to really grind it out and fight to get what they want and have uh, succeeded in many different areas of cannabis. And we have an exciting candidate that uh, we'll be announcing on uh, Wednesday of next week at Benzinger. And uh, I'm really looking forward to announcing it. They are a deserving person of this award. They remind me a lot of Bob and his entrepreneurship uh, spirit. Bob and I got into business way back before Maramed and uh, we did a lot of ventures together. But uh, it was a great thing to see somebody that was excited to try different things and take some risks and do entrepreneurial events that really helped people, but also gave us an opportunity to actually become what we are today with a nice sized company that's going to continue to grow. That's awesome. And leave it, leave it to Howard to come up with uh, some of these phenomenal ideas. Uh, what a star member you guys have there. Um, and so in those early days when, when you and Bob were kind of having these conversations to get into cannabis, what was kind of one of the catalysts that like pushed you guys over the edge and you were like, okay, we're going to go do this. Kind of walk us through some of those early days and and how Mary Med actually became a public company, if you will. Well, in 2008, Bob and I were running a different company at the time doing some uh, medical billing and collections. And uh, he brought a business plan to me for a company in California that I looked at and I said, these numbers don't make any sense. So he asked if I would fly out there. So I hopped on a morning flight to San Francisco and went down to San Jose to Aptos. And I went to a house where these guys had built a grow room inside a three bedroom house. And it was down to a half a bedroom house with two and a half rooms with flour in it. And I looked at it and I studied what they were doing. And they took me into San Jose and they showed me a dispensary they were selling to some flour. And I talked to that person and I get back on the plane that night for the red eye home. And I'm like running numbers all night long on the plane. And I said, damn, these numbers actually do make a little sense, maybe a little bit aggressive, but even if I cut them back in half, the place does make sense to take that type of opportunity. So several more red eyes back and forth. And uh, we financed our first grow house in Aptos, California. Within three months, somebody came knocking, offered us the keys to a dispensary in San Jose because he was in a little trouble with his wife and basically just tossed us the keys and had a good time. And uh, Bob and I got heavily into what cannabis was about in the wild, wild west, not Colorado. California is the wild west. (laughs) I could not agree more. I spent time out there and I was like, it's very different for sure. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so we started in San Jose and Aptos and I learned a lot of ways to misgrow flour and the conceptions that everybody has the right idea how to do everything. And we got a phone call to help in Massachusetts write the referendum. And the uh, gentleman that asked us introduced us to a group in Rhode Island. That group in Rhode Island had a license to build a seed to sale operation in the Providence area. And I went there and I met with them and I said, well, there's only one way to really to raise money for cannabis. And they agreed. And uh, I said, I don't like your building. So 
I set out to find a new location for them. And this is a time when cannabis was really a bad word still. And the federal government was selling a small distribution post office across the street from their new distribution facility. So I went in and I bought from the federal government a building <laughs> that was a postal distribution center and built the first seed to sale operation in Providence, Rhode Island that we leased to our partners. And our Thank partners, you, we call them partners <laughs> because we brought in all of our staffing from California to help teach them how to grow and to sell and to package because we had learned a little bit while we were out there. And uh, we built out a facility and that's how we really got into this business. You asked how we became a public company. Well, when we got into going from the consulting, we won a bunch of applications, one being Delaware, which was the first facility in Delaware. And we raised money same way that we did it with Rhode Island and uh, California. But we had won applications in uh, Illinois and Nevada, so we needed to raise more money. And Bob uh, was sitting on another board with those board members came and said, well, why don't you guys merge with our other company that's a public company that has no revenue, and you'll raise money through the public markets. And it took us about eight months to get that deal done. There were two stocks at that time in 2013 that were out, great stocks. Except by the time we signed the uh, agreement, those stocks went from a couple bucks, maybe $10, $15 down to 10 cents because everybody realized that they had nothing. <laughs> they were just an imaginary paper idea. But then we started raising money through uh, private again. And then everybody says, well, we want a piece of all of it. So we went out and did a raise under the Merriment Advisors with the public stock being a convertible. And that was our first entry really into the public market. But we were already owned 50% by uh, Worlds Online at that time. And uh, we just kept growing. And at a period of time, they finally said, you can't be Worlds Online. So we said, it makes more sense to call it Marimed. So we took over the name, we took over the stock symbol, and we have done successful raises under the public company. And our stock has been very strong in the market compared to a lot of the industry. Uh, we're just not at that valuation because we didn't go to Canada right away and raise stupid money and just go buy, buy, buy. We were the type of group that concentrated on doing it from the application side, build them out, get them up and running. And we started doing the consolidation in 2018, where we took all of our partners and we merged them into Marimed. And that's how Marimed now is reporting the uh, plant touching side of the cannabis where we can sell and report those numbers versus just consulting. So Marimed keeps continue to grow. I think it's 14 quarter over quarters of uh, continued growth of revenue and uh, positive EBITDA and positive cash flow for the last two years, I believe it is. So Marimed may be coming in slow than the others, but we've always been around we just weren't touching the plant and reporting all the revenue that was there. We waited for our partners to get to uh, legalization in their states or to go from originally most places were not-for-profit. So then when the not-for-profit was allowed to be profit, we went in and we were able to merge them into Marimed. And Marimed has a lot of ambitious plans to continue our growth through the states that we're in and outside of that. I think it's really impressive what your team has done. And there's a ton of retail investors that raise the Mary Med flag really loud and proud all the time, pushing for those accomplishments. And I, I want to stay with some of the the experience that your team has, given that it started in California uh, God, so long ago. And just comparison in cannabis years, what is it, like 70 years is what it's times, <laughs> times 10 is per year. It's just, it's, it's just one of those where those experiences, those lessons learned really just translate to future opportunities and success because you know where to look for those obstacles and those, those hurdles. So specifically Maryland, let's talk there because that's an exciting opportunity. A lot of people are talking about the growth that that can have in comparison to some of these others. 
How, how does that state play into your future growth? And talk to us about the current status of it. We're so excited about Maryland right now. Maryland going adult use uh, last year has been a great opportunity for us to continue the growth. At, now that we've finished the roll-up of that, we're putting in some of our dollars this year into expanding the grow operations in that state. Last year, we opened up our brand new uh, GMP kitchen, which actually is a certified GMP kitchen, so that we were able to do high doses in the state. But that kitchen alone is just part of the story. I mean, when we build out these additional grow rooms, we're able to produce all of our brands at a very high level, having the controls of the flower that we need, and having additional flour to sell into a market that's just growing every month. And it's an exciting state. Even the fact that they're new, they may not be as aggressive on the taxes as Missouri, but this is a great state that's really behind the program. For them to be able to take a vote in November and turn it around by July 1st to have it up and running as an adult use state, I, I, I applaud the people of Maryland. That is just an incredible happening where most states are very slow. This was a great opportunity and we're so excited. We hope to have our expansion completed by the end of the year and have additional uh, flour and products into Maryland early next. When you're making those expansion uh, conversations, is it, a, is it a macro strategic sense saying that we have this t- amount of capital to invest in growth and operations, we should do X here or Y here? Or is it more specific in saying that Maryland's market right now needs more capital and we should deploy here and look at everything separately? How, how do you oversee the operations to make those strategic differences? Well, as I said, I've put together a very strong management team here at Merrimed, and we take advantage of having weekly discussions of things and ideas to make this company continue to grow and grow in the right direction. Maryland, we were not concentrating on at the beginning of the year, figuring that there was no way they were going to get this up and running by July. And we were looking at expanding Massachusetts. And we uh, decided that we should expand Maryland a lot quicker than Massachusetts. So we put more money towards that. As you said, we repurpose the capital over there. We're still working on Massachusetts, just not doing the uh, build-outs as big and as quick as we're doing in Maryland, because Maryland, as as you pointed out, will turn around to generate additional cash flow much quicker. So as I was saying that we're very excited about Maryland and the expansion there, you know, we were able to uh, expand the kitchen last year, brought the GMP kitchen in, and actually got a certified GMP so that we were able to bring high doses back of our branded products into the state. And uh, with the expansion of the grow, we're gonna have additional grow rooms that are gonna produce uh, pretty much almost double what we presently are for flour uh, by the end of the year. So sometime in the beginning to middle of uh, 2024, we'll see the increased uh, flour that will help us uh, get that revenue back in house and cash flowing so that we can help facilitate other growth within the company. You know, having the retail store open the previous year and now have the kitchen and the additional grow, Maryland's going to be a really exciting opportunity for us. One of the the challenges in cannabis, as we all know, is that 280E makes it a little harder to have that extra cash. So instead of being able to have that extra resources to invest in both your operations, you're having to be a little more strategic. And I know you are a little more outspoken that two, the removal of 280E is more beneficial from the industry than safe. And I'd like you to kind of shed some light on the benefits of that. Well, the magical tea party of 280E, another Howard special, that was a great opportunity to teach people the importance of how 280E is a bigger issue than legalized banking. The 280E tax code has hurt everybody in this industry getting taxed on your gross profit and not being able to take extraordinary costs against your tax returns. Uh, I've been fortunate enough that I've been in this industry since 2008, that I've learned quite a bit about 280E and how to be prepared for it. And uh, I'm very happy that we have been able to go through the waterways of 280E. But I think that if the uh, government would reschedule 
to a three or four or D schedule altogether would really be a much bigger benefit to the uh, cannabis industry than the banking bill. The banking bill will just make some banking a little bit more readily available. But 280E, that's the real benefit to the consumer because it means that we don't have to pay this high price tax to the government. That means that we have to sell more to be able to live and be able to breathe for another day. Getting rid of 280E makes us like any other company that we can operate and take ordinary business deductions, which would be a huge tax savings, especially for those little people in the industry trying to get into New York, as you were brought up earlier. You know, one of the biggest difficulties is when you raise money, it's never enough because you got to pay so much more taxes when you're not making any money at the beginning. So not making money during the uh, startup of an operation is very difficult because your taxes are setting you further and further behind. So it's uh, it's exciting to hear that the government is actually truly looking at changing the rescheduling to a three or four. I think that is the more important piece to happen. John, could you kind of just briefly describe what 280 is for, for our listeners that are unaware of it? And then also, I'm curious, does 280E affect each portion of the supply chain equally? Meaning if I own a retail shop, 280 affects me the same as if I am a cultivator versus a vertically integrated kind of seed to sale organization. Do you kind of talk about if that's equal distribution of 280 as well as what 280 The 280 tax law reads that if you're doing a activity that is not federally legal, that such as a scheduled one drug, that you are not able to take ordinary expenses as a tax deduction. And when I first got into this, it was a lot of research into what that meant. And it meant that your cost of goods sold was really the only expenses that you could take as long as you were not selling the medicine directly to the patient, which is where a retail store gets hit the worst. So the only cost that you can deduct is the product that you're actually selling. You can't deduct the rent because that's below cost of goods. You can't deduct your payroll. You can't deduct your advertising. And they even will fight you on a lot of your supplies that you're bringing in that are not cannabis. So there's a lot of a lot of uh, tough time decision-making of how to uh, properly deduct. And way back when we first started, people would set up management companies that would handle all of that and lease them to the dispensaries. And then there was a lot of question about the legality of that, of if you were marking them up over the actual costs, how how much tax you should be paying on the other side. But then the people are still selling the cannabis. They can't be deducted. So it even made that part of the business really get challenged throughout the years. So you asked a very interesting question, which a lot of people don't ask, which is, How does it affect every aspect of the business? Manufacturing doesn't have the same rules because a lot more can be put into your cogs. You're not selling to the consumer directly. Seat to sale you are, but not the manufacturing and processing. You're selling to a retailer. So there's a little bit more leniency on that side in terms of what you can and can't take for an operating deduction. So 280E is a very complex piece, I'm not going to say any more than that because I don't, I've already passed a couple audits. I don't need the IRS coming with a magnifying glass the other direction. I think that's fair. And I think anytime you're doing creative accounting, which I think is what has to happen in these situations, it's just unnecessary for all the people that are involved. But I want you to stay with the event because it had Howard's fingerprints all over it. And I loved watching it as, (laughs) as a fan of marketer and of Howard, you just knew right away this fingerprint. So What's the idea like? Does he bring you the idea fully baked or is it just more of a creative concept? He's like, I'm thinking this. What do you think, John? How does that work? Oh, Howard brought us several ideas. And this is one that a lot of people were just like, okay, Howard, you did the brownie. That was a big score. No one really believed in it. We got to believe in you again. This sounds crazy, but we understand and we'll all support it. And uh, I think it actually went off even better then I would have envisioned it and maybe even better than Howard envisioned it. But he worked very hard and I cannot believe the outfits that he was able to get us the real look and feel of our ancestors 
you know, and the fact that we're doing it in the 50th anniversary year of the Boston Tea Party is magnificent. What a great thought by him and having everybody support to properly do this. But I think it was really exciting for a lot of our employees that we brought in from other states. We brought in our top month of the monthly employees from each of our facilities. We flew them into Boston. They got to meet some of their cohorts in Massachusetts, but then they joined us on the boat and we had a nice dinner with them afterwards. But it was exciting because some of them didn't even understand 280E. So explaining to the company and explaining to these employees what they're protesting, it really had a lot of sense in what we were doing on that boat. And I think that it's a great opportunity to show the rest of the industry that we all stand together. This wasn't just about Marimed. It's really about how do we make a statement to help the industry. And just quickly for our listeners that may have missed it in the news, can you just tell them what happened? <laughs> well, I'll make sure I use the words right. That was hard, hard me. But we stormed the schooner and we took it out to the, to the harbor and we chanted down with 280E. And we chanted and chanted. Uh, Tim Shaw, our COO, read a, docu- docu- a document of a statement. Uh, I was unfair that 280E exists and that the government should reschedule and that we threw boxes that read weed on them into the Boston Harbor. We brought them right back out, <laughs> throw anything into the harbor. It wasn't real weed inside, so everybody can relax. We didn't damage good flour by throwing it in the water. But it was the point of uh, demonstrating in full garb of our ancestors' outfits of the colonials. It was very hot, though. I will admit, wearing all that stuff, I was I was the one wet, and the boxes were drier than I was. But <laughs> it was a beautiful day, great celebration, and I can't wait for Howard's event next year. Spoiler alert. Does policymakers reach out after that? Are they someone where they they see this in the news and like, what is this? I got to contact these guys. Do they ask questions like to learn more or is it one that you just kind of pass through, you think? Well, local policymakers, we have to notify the state prior to doing any of this. So the local people were not as surprised as the rest of the uh, country. But yes, I'm sure Howard had a lot of people reaching out, trying to understand more about what it was. But yes, I had a lot of great feedback in text message, emails from other CEOs congratulating us on a great idea. Love it. Love it. You think this is what the motivated the HHS? I would love to say that we can think <laughs> for that, but it's, I would it's not say relevant, that. right? <laughs> it, it, it's just Connecting perfect the How's that? <laughs> There's nothing called the coincidence. <laughs> so so john expanding on back to the maryland situation you're, you're growing up the facility and obviously you you recognize that investing capital into that facility doesn't really pay the dividends until kind of down the road but that's an understanding that this is something that's necessary for the long term when that facility is up and running is it with an understanding that we're building out certain sections for certain brands or or is it more portioned off that like we're building cultivation so that we can fulfill the needs of all the brands uh where we've already have half the building already built out with flower rooms and our GMP kitchen, already making our brands. This is to supply additional flour for our branded flour to expand the ability for more people to enjoy high quality uh, nature's heritage and maybe some in-house. So with that being said, I mean, you guys grow more flour, support these flower brands. Is there ever conversations where you're like, all right, we're going to kind of just position this portion of the grow to manufacture, say, this type of edible with just this um, because we're trying to push this this branded edible more? Is that at all kind of factored into kind of some of those decisions from an operation standpoint? 100%. We have to make sure that we have enough flour to keep our brands out there in full supply. We don't want to be buying flour and trim from other people if we're able to manufacture it ourselves. But uh, with doing this, we take a portion of every room and we do extract it right away to give us all of our products, not just the uh, edibles, but we do um, uh, some other dabs and items like that, that we can put waxes and things out there for patients that are looking for a lot of good products that are not edibles and not a uh, pure smokable flower. 
How hard is it to maintain like strain consistency from state to state? Has that been like a huge challenge? Is it? It, it was a very big challenge many years ago, but it's getting easier now because you're able to move seeds legally across state lines. You can move actually little clones legally across state lines, but you still have to register those strains with certain states and make sure that it's into their menu of strains that you carry. We have been very fortunate that when we started up in each state, we had similar strains, but we haven't had consistency of each of the strains in each state. We're getting there, though, and uh, we're very happy because we have good strains in every state, so now we're able to move some of them from state to state legally. One of the semi-hidden benefits of having a, a large grow for the wholesale benefits is that you can have the economies of scale internally that your team needs, which can really help those margins as you go forward. Is that a big consideration is understanding that if we control some of the input parameters, we can really drive down our costs? Yes, I mean, it, but it's more the control, not just of driving down the cost, it's the consistency and high quality of every one of our brands, whether it's the Betty's or Bubby's Baked or the Vibations or Nature's Heritage Flower, we have to make sure that we're putting out really good quality, consistent medicines or products. And that that's the biggest key. When you can produce it all in-house, that's an important piece. You get better controls that way. You have a favorite brand in your own portfolio? Well, I'm a golfer and I'm not much of a smoker because I was an athlete most of my life. So vibations is pretty much my favorite because I can have a couple of vibations on the golf course. Keeps me awake, rehydrates me, but gives me that ability on the 18th hole for that money putt. So yeah, I, don't, I don't have to worry about whether I'm going to get tired or whether I'm on one foot or two foot from drinking. And it's a lot easier to handle. You're not blaming that on the on the missed putt, though. <laughs> he doesn't miss putts. You know what I, mean? I don't. No. I don't miss those putts. I told you they're money putts. <laughs> You're a hero. <laughs> so, are there any brands on the horizon that you think, give it six, twelve months from now, you think will will grow that just might be too early in the market, just given the current state of Maryland as a whole? Well, we got Betty's. Uh, sorry, Bubby's baked. We're introducing some new products there. I think we just announced our blueberry muffin. A blueberry muffin, people think of it as a morning food, but it's actually, it's a really great food all day long. And those <laughs> muffins are full of great blueberries. But our, our Betty's Eddie's, uh, we keep expanding the uh, different effects um, so that you can have a Sleepy or a Betty Go that gives you that up and go. But again, the vibrations, it's a rehydration um, product. So there's a lot more coming out of people wanting a rehydration with some common ups or maybe something to help them relax or take off the edge. So I think that those product lines that are right there, those three are going to be continue to be growth products that we're going to be getting into each of the markets we're actually already in, but we're going to expand them and continue to bring in new flavors and new uh, what we call effects. With the with the vibations, right? It's hydration, but there's also this like growing scientific body of of work that's just showing that cannabinoids have like therapeutic uh, recovery benefits as well. So, as any of your guys's consumers, because I know you can't product claims are challenging, right? But have any of your consumers come back to you guys being like, "Hey, like I'm actually taking this to help hydrate after my workout, but also it's been huge for recovery." Have you guys heard any of the any stories like that? We've been hearing some stories of recovery. We hear stories of people using it to give them a little bit of a boost as we had some caffeine in there and some of our brand, but we're not allowed to talk about the health benefits of that's, a product that's in most states because we're not medically tested yeah. under the uh, guidelines of the government. So uh, I'll just say that, yes, we have heard some great feedback from people from the uh, effects, whether it's uh the rehydration or the re-energizing their bodies. Oh, the joys of cannabis. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, being people that have been in this since it was a first start in medical, I can tell you all the medical benefits that I've seen in the people that we have helped. I mean, I always talk and tell the one story that brings the biggest heartbreak to me, which, or not heartbreak, but heart joy to me of how when I was helping 
run a register down in Delaware when we first opened and a gentleman in a wheelchair comes up and he's in tears crying because he's not worried about getting rolled in the alleyways anymore, that he can get good quality products and not have to worry about getting himself rolled, money taken, and his wheelchair broken. And I rang up his uh, order. I put it in a bag, took the money out of his pocket, counted it out for him, handed him the change, gave him some uh, additional product for being a great customer. And I put that bag in the back of his wheelchair and gave him a hug. But that's why I originally got into this business was to help people be able to get better from the use of our cannabis. Those continue to be the most powerful stories, the ones that just change perspectives and understanding that this is more than just a recreational product. This is a product that is making massive differences for others. And just continuing on the growth conversation, Maryland, super hot market. We've got expansion plans. Missouri, another hot market. Other expansion plans? Missouri, we have a uh, license that we bought for manufacturing and we're in the process of uh, building out. But as we talked about speed of states, it's uh, one of those uh, slower states when it comes to approvals of uh, getting things done, similar to uh, Massachusetts, but this seems to be a little bit longer. So we are still working on that facility. We just cannot tell you the timing it will take to get into that state. Uh, we're looking at continuing the growth in the states that we're in to try to be fully vertical in every state that we go into and to also expand to the license maxes of each of those states. So in Illinois, we're opening up our fifth dispensary, and that will still have five more to go. In addition, we're opening up a cultivation processing in that state. So we'll be fully vertical in Illinois in the next uh, month or two. And uh, Missouri, we're going into with the processing. Ohio, we're looking to expand in Ohio. We can have up to five dispensaries in that state plus cultivation and processing. Um, Massachusetts, we just finished getting capped out, and we have one more medical license that we can apply for. Let's see here. In uh, Delaware, we're waiting to roll that in, and they're looking at going adult use in 2025. So we're hopeful at that time or before that, that Delaware will be part of our Merrimed reportable uh, portfolio. And we're going to continue to look at additional states. We've applied in Texas. We're going to apply, like I said, in New York. We've uh, looking in New Jersey. We uh, have a social equity license that we supported in Connecticut. And we're going to continue to look at growth states to be able to go in and expand Marimed at our pace, not the industry pace. We want to do it right. We don't want to overborrow. We want to keep that ethic of keeping our balance sheet strong, our positive cash flow, and not have to borrow at these uh, high, high interest rates that are out there today. So we may be a little bit more patient, but we're going to expand as we see best for us. So as you guys are growing and looking to grow, there's kind of like two different options from a resource deployment perspective, right? You could take a resources, like you're saying, and build out the max number of dispensaries in like an Illinois market, or you could expand to a new market, right? I know that you guys are doing a lot of these simultaneously, but talk us through some of like the strategy and, and how you guys come to the decisions associated with, okay, we're going to take these resources and we're going to take this team and we're going to focus on on building out and making our presence in, in this market stronger versus going into a new market. Kind of talk us through those conversations that you guys are having internally when you're making those decisions. Well, I'd say about two years ago, we set our goals to what we wanted to accomplish in the next five years. And we're still following that formula of the four pillars that we set up. First, complete the roll-ups of our entities that we were managing at the very beginning. Like I said, we have Delaware left to do. Expand in the states that we're presently in, make us vertical in as many states as possible. That was number two. Three was to expand through mergers and acquisitions in additional states, including writing new applications such as Texas. And the fourth one is to grow the brands. This whole industry is going to be about branded branded products and make sure that our brands that we're very successful at running in every state that we're in as a top product in every state that they're in. 
We want to take that and continue that growth of our branded products across the country in an orderly way that we're not losing the integrity of our product so the people get the consistency in every time they have our product. We want to be the Coca-Cola. We want to be the McDonald's. We want you to be able to know what you're coming in to get. I'd say Budweiser, but I don't know if that's safe right now. So Yeah, <laughs> Budweiser, right? <laughs> we want that consistency. So not just finding any partner to manufacture our brands, but to do it in an orderly fashion where we find a good, strong partner, or we go into the state and do it ourselves, such as we're doing in Missouri. It's so complex what you just described with, as you said, at your own speed. But for me, that sounded pretty aggressive given all the complexities and understanding that each state operates completely differently. You're adding different pieces of the puzzle to each state, which would adjust all of the resources then internally. Then you want to invest in your brands, which you think will be the paramount of the industry, which I 100% agree people will select brands, not the companies. But investing all those is all capital-based, right? Because you need resources and capital to invest in all those, not only so that they can stand on their own, but they can interconnect. So, I mean, are you looking at like a big US map and just trying to figure out how to put these pieces of the puzzle together? Or do you have multiple people leading each division and then just trying to align them from a strategic sense? Well, I could sit here and say that we're throwing darts at the wall and whichever wall it hits, we call it a state. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, as we discussed earlier, and I think you you made the statement that we've got a very strong management team with years and years of experience. Because we were consultants first, managing in multiple states, that gave us an experience and an education of how to properly manage multiple operations in multiple states. Our management team is the reason that we're successful. Two, capitalization and raising funds. There is no market to that today unless I want to pay these high, high interest rates. And we have to make decisions of which way we want to go. So we don't rush to do decisions. We take a time, we find the right locations, we take a look at the forecast that we feel we can hit and whether the cash flow will be there within six months, 10 months, 12 months, 24. How long is it going to take us to recoup the cash that we have to put in? We built a lot of our company off of cash flow versus raising money, unlike a lot of other companies that just raised money and threw it in. We try to be very prudent in not being overextended with debt. We continue that. And uh, interest rates have been out of control, not by industry alone, but the economy. So we're going to be patient. We're going to pick the opportunities that we feel are the best. We've changed some of our objective from building from ground up to now looking at buying things that are already up and running that we can go in add our expertise, our management, and some of our names to it to bring that to a cash flow sooner. So we look at it as a full group team to figure out which direction we want to go and what makes the most sense for Merrimed. So with a, a cash flow in uh, at like the, the center stage, when you guys are kind of focusing on pushing these different brands, I imagine that each state kind of has a different preference. I could be wrong, but I imagine that like the same brand doesn't just crush it in every single state. So when you guys go to these new states and are pushing these brands to generate cash flow, is it something where you're like, hey, we really want this brand to be this across every single the, the Bud Light or the uh you know kind of Coca-Cola, if you will, in every state. Like what is that balance of like this is the brand that we really want to be the cornerstone versus this is the brand that seems to be creating the most traction in that state? Are you kind of just like let the markets dictate what brands you push? Like talk us through some of that. Well, I think you've been stuck in Colorado a little too long. <laughs> we, I like that answer. <laughs> we've, we've made our brands to take to every state. We okay. want our brands in every state. Betty Zetties, which is our top selling brand, has been the uh, brand that has been around the longest for us. But that's been in the most states, and it's been number one in almost every single one of them as they go in. So the answer is no, we're not going to adjust to go into a state to make a product that everybody else is making. We're going into states that we feel will be a state that will sell edibles, that want these type of brands that we're making. Our brands are slightly different than everybody else's. Yeah, everybody has a gummy. We have a gummy. But... Betty's Eddie's is a taffy chew, something that's not very common out there. 
our Bubby's Baked. Like I said, we're making little blueberry muffins and we make brownies and we make um, the snickerdoodles. Then you got vibations. People are buying pre, pre-made drinks. We're a drink mix. It's a little bit more discreet. You could take it wherever you want. Just throw it in a bottle of water or in your favorite drink that you're drinking or sprinkle it on your food, which I've heard people say they've done. So it's different ways of making the products that are not common out there. So that is a little bit different. So we take it to every state, but we do take our gummies right now to every state also. They're a little bit more slow to get into the market, but our Betty's is so good that it helps open the door and get all of our brands into each market and eventually in Colorado. I love that answer, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) No, we're us, so (laughs) I love that. (laughs) What's the most expensive lesson you've ever learned? Don't listen to a grower coming out of the hills of California. (laughs) (laughs) Were you ever close to closing up shop? If so, what changed to alter your path? Closing up shop, we ended up walking away from our California operation, not because of the fact that we were doing a bad job or the difficulty of dealing from coast to coast, the real East Coast, West Coast. I could get to Colorado quicker. Um, I love it. (laughs) It was more the fact that I'll use San San Jose as an example. San Jose went from 400, sorry, 240 dispensaries down to six. We were the final six, and they called me up and told us that the location that I picked out for our new location had a squatter and that we needed to find a new location or we had three months or we were going to be declined our license. A squatter in California has more rights than a building owner. So the squatter became a home, which meant it was a residential area and we were not able to move there. Having to fly across the coast to try to do this in 60 days, we just said it was easier to hand back the keys to the government and say thank you. But that was the only time we ever walked away. Frustrations of this industry, I've uh, taken a lot of beatings from 2008 to present, but I think I kind of enjoy this industry and I see what I do to help people. So no, I have never thought about walking away. Dream vivacious session, three people that are alive. Three people that are alive, vibration session. Well, I was going to say smoking, but I know you don't smoke. So I I tried to integrate it into a more personal, dead or alive. Dead or alive, people that I would love to party with. Well, Bob Fireman would be one that I would love to be able to enjoy some uh, partaking of our products. And the rest would be my management team. Just having one day where we don't have to do anything other than just to relax and enjoy what each of us like. I I do a phone call with our new employees every month where I have lunch with the new employees of the month. And we talk about what everybody likes to partake in when it comes to cannabis, whether you do it or not, doesn't make a difference. And it's really fun to hear what everybody has to say. So I would say being able to get the team together or all of my employees, if it was ever possible for a big smoke fest, it would be a lot of fun. When you got started in the cannabis space, what did you get right? And most importantly, what did you get wrong? What I get right, that we figured out how to raise money in a very difficult time where people didn't believe in cannabis. And what we did wrong was really all the different ways that we learned how to grow wrong in California before we figured it out and started doing it all right on the East Coast. Beautiful. All right, prediction time. John, the future is brands. What do you think will separate brands from each other when consumers are making selections? Consistency, quality, flavor, and giving the patients what, sorry, I'm saying patients, but giving the customers what they want, which is choice of uh, different types of controls uh, of controls of variation of whether you want it for aches, pains, uh, energy. Betty's Eddie's Sleep is the number one in each market that it goes to. And I have people that swear by it that tell me sleep aid has never worked for them until they've tried Betty's Eddie's. And it's a great thing to hear because I think that's going to make us one of the top brands when it comes to sleeping. Love it. Kellen, your prediction. 
I mean, it's tough not to agree with John, right? I think that the biggest issue in brands from a cannabis perspective across the country is lack of consistency, right? You can go to California and buy uh, an OG pre-roll or whatever and go to a different state and they're going to be completely different experiences. So I think consistency is going to be vital to uh, brands moving forward. Um, and I, I think that's just as the most important thing. Quality, of course, right? High end, high quality, high consistency are going to be what separates kind of the boys from the men, um, in my opinion. Uh, what do you think, Brian? I think the the messaging and the the branding behind it speaks to individuals. I think there's a lot of consumers out there that are trying products for the first time, and they're overwhelmed by selection. When they look at all the products out there, they they gravitate towards one. And I think having that connection with brands and having that ability to speak to the consumer is what's going to separate them and and be able to continue to have that repeat purchase. 100% agree on consistency aspects, but I think there's a selection process earlier on that helps to separate them. And I think there's more of a branding or asset or messaging aspects that speaks it's, to the individual. The, the messaging is definitely going to be a big aspect of getting people with the right messaging and a quick message, a little tiny spot telling people the benefits of this one product or what this product is best at. So getting that messaging across is going to be part of it, but the consistency of knowing when you go into any shop that you're getting the same product. Absolutely, 100%. So, John, for our listeners, they want to get in touch and they want to buy Merrimed's products, where can they find you? They can find it at merrimedinc.com and they can get directed to the proper websites for where our products are um, or they could reach out to Howard directly. <laughs> On our website, there's uh, information of how to reach Howard and he'll be happy to give anybody information. But uh, I really appreciated the time today, gentlemen. It's been fun. Good speaking with you, John. Talk to you soon. Yeah. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. Bye-bye. Guys, if you've enjoyed this podcast over the last few years, can you please take three minutes or less and leave us a quick review on Apple or Spotify? All reviews make a massive difference for us and help other people like you find this podcast. From the bottom of our hearts, thank you. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Tune into a major journey podcast today, where guests take listeners on journeys and immerse themselves in the roller coaster ride both in and out of the cannabis space that brought them to where they are today. Throughout our conversations, guests share valuable lessons that they've learned along the way that listeners can use to empower growth both in their personal and professional lives. Check out A Major Journey today on all major podcast platforms.